Honest, I live a life of a million years. Spending my money, I didn't give. And took my friends out for a good time. You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Kuneahiti Northern Light United Church on February 14th, 2023. Co-hosts for the evening were Jeffrey Smith and David Noon. The theme was YOLO, or You Only Live Once. The profit recipient for the event was the Southeast Alaska LGBTQ Plus Alliance, and live music was performed by Annie Bartholomew. It's mighty strange without a doubt Nobody knows you when you're down So we've got a, a brand new storyteller who's going to be kicking things off tonight. Thomas Young Bayer is a, a new member of the Juno community, having recently escaped the frenetic bustle of southern New England. His careers have included research, diving, and organic farming, and he's excited to return to a region with kelp, forests, and mountains. His wife tells him that he has too many hobbies, so he's going to spare us the details on that. Uh, he did want to include a brief note at the start of this. Uh, the story includes a personal encounter with a police officer that Tom acknowledges could very well have turned out differently if uh, he were not a, a straight white man. So he wants to acknowledge the, the privilege of relative safety that he enjoyed in that encounter. Uh, privilege. It's not often afforded to those in our society who do not look like him. So welcome to the stage, uh, Thomas Young Bayer, first time on Mudrooms. So a decade ago, I was going through a really rough period. My wife had nearly lost her job when her employer fumbled her government fisheries contract. And they, her boss managed to find her a new position, but it required that we move from Seattle to my childhood hometown of Milwaukee, Oregon, just south of Port southeast of Portland. Uh, because of that move, I had to walk away from a fantastic opportunity to help manage a 90-year-old organic farm. Uh, at first, we were really optimistic about the move. We, we bought a home together. She loved her new job. Um, and Portland was a much less hectic city than Seattle, but I was really struggling to find a decent job for myself. Eventually, I applied to be the manager of this store in Milwaukee called Bob's Red Mill. Now, Bob's Red Mill, um, it turns out, is about one mile away as the crow flies from the house that I grew up in. And Bob's Red Mill actually looks exactly like the image of it on the bags of food that you would see at the grocery store. So somehow I made it through the first two rounds of interviews and ended up with an interview with Bob, the man himself. Sitting across from Bob at the restaurant in Bob's Red Mill, it occurred to me that he too looked exactly like the image of him on their bags of food that you see at the grocery store. 
<laughs> I waited patiently for about 20 minutes, no exaggeration, while he chatted casually with every customer that walked by. And then he looked down at my resume, looked back up at me, and said, what are you doing here? Shouldn't you be on a farm or a boat somewhere? So needless to say, I did not get that job. And the professional purgatory that I felt stuck in had really started to take a toll on our marriage. We were fighting a lot. I realized that I actually really hated living in the town that I grew up in. So I took Bob's advice. And after many months working on schooners and brigantines, studying endless books of nautical science, and taking a multi-day battery of Coast Guard tests, I earned myself a 100-ton inland waters captain's license and a 200-ton oceans mate's license. I was ecstatic. I was so excited about this new chapter in my life. My wife was really proud of me and this new career path. But my marriage continued to fall apart. Uh, one day, in between sailing trips, my wife confessed to me that she was having an emotional affair. She had fallen in love with her boss, the same man who had convinced us to move to Milwaukee in the first place. Never mind that he was at least 20 years older than us and married with two children. We discussed it at length, and we decided that we would somehow make it work and put things back together. I kept on sailing, and I landed myself a job as a first mate of this beautiful, fast topsail catch called the Angelique in Midcoast, Maine. I sailed most of 2015 with that year. We won the Maine Windjammer race. I won the fleet's crazy Michael Foxtrot award, and I experienced the most exciting sailing of my life. And meanwhile, our ma marriage was improving, I thought. Our vacations together were great. On our seven-year anniversary, she posted a Facebook image of our wedding photo with a message that said, so happy to have been married for seven years to this wonderful man to many years ahead of us. And then I didn't hear from her for a month. When she finally responded to my calls, it was to tell me that I wasn't allowed to come to her brother's wedding, a trip that we had planned for a very long time. And she refused to tell me why. I spent the next week pouring everything I had into my work just to stay sane. Flew back to Oregon, and she took me to our favorite spot along the Columbia River, where she announced to me that she was really happy to have spent the last 11 years together as my partner, but she wanted a divorce. She wanted to leave me, leave our dogs, leave her job, leave our house, leave the country, and travel around the world. My now ex-wife had decided to go eat, pray, love. <laughs> it's funny, but not. Um, so two days later, I pulled a Forrest Gump, and I went running. I took my dog, Misha, who had been my best friend for a decade, to, coincidentally, Forest Park in Northeast Portland. And we ran from one end of the park to the other end of the park together, a distance of 50 kilometers, up and down these steep forested hillsides, through these beautiful groves of Douglas fir, oak, and maple trees, just feeling the soil and the roots beneath my feet, seeing the sheer joy in my dog as we ran together, gave me the first sense that things were going to be all right. When we got to 
the end of Forest Park, Misha, who was over 11 years old, was exhausted, and I had her picked up. And then I turned around, and I kept running. And I ran back to the other end of Forest Park, another 50 kilometers. Now, mind you, I had been living on a boat for the last four months, and anybody who's lived on boats knows they're a horrible place to train for ultramarathons. At some point, this turned from a beautiful, cathartic experience into a meditation in suffering. My muscles started to cramp. All the joints in my legs started to ache and throb. Night fell, and I muddled through the last dozen or so miles in the dark. And the rest of that night, my memory are just these fuzzy snapshots like Polaroid pictures, a snapshot of getting lost in the dark on the trail and having to backtrack quite a ways to find the trail again. An audio snapshot of the same angry breakup song playing on an endless loop in my head over and over again as I ran with pain all through my legs. A snapshot of finally making it to the car well after nightfall. A snapshot of going into a gas station to buy a desperately needed jug of orange juice. A snapshot of starting awake with red and blue lights in my rearview mirror. I was being pulled over, and I knew immediately why I had fallen asleep at the wheel. I remember the police officer asking me if I had been drinking. I remember looking at the empty bottle of orange juice and answering, yes. <laughs> it's not one of my brighter moments. I remember the police officer eyeing my muddy running clothes and my camelback and asking me what I had been doing and where and where I was going. And I told him, I just ran 100 kilometers at Forest Park and I'm a mile away from home. And I remember the police officer saying, 100 kilometers, is that even possible? Clearly this man had never seen Forrest Gump before. And the last thing I remember from that night is somehow luckily getting away with a warning. And as I pulled back onto the Milwaukee Expressway, feeling so grateful that I was soon returning to my new boat home on the Angelique. The next day after I had fully regained consciousness, I realized that that spot where I had been pulled over was exactly across the highway from Bob's Red Mill. So thanks, Bob. All right. Our next storyteller is Stormy Squires. Thanks in advance, Stormy, for your bio here. Ready? She said a hip hop, the hippie, the hippie to the hip, hip hop, and you don't stop the rocket to the bang, bang, boogie, say up, jump, the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie, the beat. Thank you. She also loves traveling, reading, and being in water, provided said water is not trying to kill her. Please welcome Stormy. Thank you for that. I couldn't have done it better. As I bounced along the bottom of the river, plunged over an underwater waterfall, and felt myself pulled deeper into the current, I thought, maybe YOLO isn't the right message to live by. Maybe I should have interpreted it differently, right? So, like, maybe I should get into taking long naps and, and 
baths, right? Slightly more tame version of water, but I was 21, so that tells you a lot. And I had just um, graduated college and got my dream job, which was office manager for a whitewater rafting company in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Any of you been to Jackson? Yeah, it's, a, it's the dreamiest place on earth, and um, I couldn't wait to spend a summer there. It's also where 18 months ago today, I married my best friend, so happy Valentine's Day. Um, so I was thrilled to, to spend a summer there. I had grown up rafting with my family. Um, it, was, it was fostered in our family culture by my outdoorsy parents who piled the five of us nature-named siblings into a boat every summer and made us paddle as hard as we could uh, as my dad sat in the back and bellowed orders in his scary dad voice. Uh, that made you feel like if you didn't paddle hard enough, we were for sure going to die. And so Sunshine Star, Dusty Forest, and I were just, we were just set on this trajectory of rafting for life, obviously. So that summer, you know, rafting had been very safety-centric as a, as a young person with my father in the back, but rafting with off-the-clock river guides is very different. Uh, these guys and girls have run the river so much that they can do it in the dark. They can do it backwards. They can do it while they spin circles through the river. Uh, it's pretty crazy. So when my friend Tyler came to me and said, hey, do you want to take a two-person boat down the river at almost record high water levels for that stretch of the river? I said, YOLO, Right. So we pile into our glorified pool floaty, and I'm in the front, he's in the back, and my brother and some friends get in a safety boat and in case any carnage happens, right? So we take off down the river, and I've run that river my whole life, and it was barely recognizable. Uh, the water was so high. We reach the first rapid, which is called Double Draw. It was formed by a, a landslide of the same name the year prior, so it was a new, land, a new rapid. And it's, it starts with a standing wave, and then it has a very fun wave train behind it. But that standing wave, you have to get over it to get to the wave train. So we get down low in the boat, we're paddling hard, we slide up it, and I'm surprised when we reach the top, to be honest, because I was expecting not to. And I dig my paddle in, and I can see over the crest of the wave. And then like when you're on a swing and you reach the top, and then there's this moment of weightlessness as you fall backwards. I felt myself going backwards. <laughs> I was like, this is not right. And then we hit the bottom of the wave and are swiftly dump trucked into the water. So any chance of a clean run is off the table. But uh, you know, we laugh, we get back in the boat, and, and we continue on. We reach lunch counter, which is the biggest rapid on the river. Two cliffs funnel the water to, into just this raging wave train. And I remember looking at it that day and feeling like an ant looking into a washing machine mid-cycle. Just huge waves with foaming white caps. And I kind of wondered if we were going to make it, but, you know, it was a little too late to bail. So... Again, I got down low. I leaned out the front of the boat. I was holding this like really intense butt clench 
because I wanted to keep the nose down so we didn't go backwards and flip. And I was like, I felt like a warrior mermaid. It was amazing. And I'm spearing, I, you know, spearing the, the water and we crest the first wave and we're just barreling down the back side of this wave and straight up and straight down, we're riding these waves. And I remember one time, at one point, looking up in that rapid and seeing a wave that was so unique. I'd never, I'd never seen anything like it. It looked like Mount Crumpet from the Grinch. It was just this huge mountain with a curl on top, kind of going sideways. And I was, I was well, here we go. So, uh, so I hit hit that wave, and for moments, everything is water. I can't see, I can't breathe, and every part of me is water. (laughs) And then I break through through and I emerge victorious, and I glance back to celebrate with Tyler, and I am alone in the boat. And, uh, you know, it's a swirling chaos around me. I look around, and I don't see Tyler. And then, thankfully, he pops up right behind the boat, comes around, and I pull him in. We continue on. No problem, right? So we reach the, the next rapid, which is Champagne. It's, a, it's normally one of the more tame rapids on the river, um, sometimes, frankly, a little boring. But that day, it has these bubbles that come up that look like bubbles from Champagne, which is pretty cool. But it's because there's an underwater waterfall. It's, it's like 80 feet. And so, you know, the, the current just drops down this cliff. But that day, though, there was so much water that what was normally dry shoreline had a beautiful second wave train like it was made for us. Just a small, narrow thing, but was clear, innocuous-looking waves like somebody had drawn, like a little kid draws a beach, right? Like, So we were like, of course, we're going to hit that. So we, we hit it, and despite its innocent look, we were immediately dumped from the boat. And this is where we bounce along the bottom, and we're pulled down deeper into the water. And I remember feeling the seconds tick by like minutes. And my lungs start to burn as I'm holding my paddle but swimming as hard as I can. And my body is so full of adrenaline, I feel like I could burst. Finally, I break through the surface. And I am gasping for air. I look down and Tyler has popped up. And the safety boat is on its way to pick us up. I look back to locate where the boat is, and it's still happily surfing on the wave where it had dumped us. And so the safety boat plucked us from the water, and the current was so, was so fast in this area that it took us around the corner and we lost sight of our boat. And we entered the final rapid of this eight-mile whitewater stretch, after which is immediately the takeout. So I knew we had a bit of a time crunch now. (laughs) We're halfway through the rapid when the boat emerges. It pinballs its way through the rocks. And just before we reach the takeout, we catch the boat and finish the most epic eight miles of river I've ever run. Thank you. Uh, Our next storyteller, uh, Bill Leedy, 
is uh, joining us on the stage here. Bill uh, grew up in Waterloo, Iowa, where he was a high school science fair nerd, spent most of his time at home in his basement working on his electronic projects. Senior year at Waterloo West, 1961, Bill won first place in physical sciences at the Northeast Iowa Science Fair, advancing to the National Science Fair. Bill arrived in Juneau aboard the Ferry Taku at the old downtown ferry terminal on his birthday, 18th of June, 1971. One of four new hire state of Alaska budget analysts with a fresh MBA from Stanford Business School, and Juno has been his home ever since. Uh, Bill says we learn by talking, and thanks you for helping him learn a bit about who he is by talking to you tonight. Welcome to the stage, Bill Leedy. I'd never heard of YOLO until three weeks ago when I signed up for this gig. <laughs> I, I think it's the theme of my life. 1960, just after junior year in high school, I convinced my parents to let me borrow the family's uh, other car, 53 Chevy, so that John Jacobson, my great uh, classmate, and I could go 435 miles north into the wilderness of Minnesota to, to Bemidji, camp out at Little Lake called Lake George there in a tent with no bottom to it, build wood fires to cook our food. We talked some adults into buying cigarettes and beer for us so we could learn to smoke and drink. We rented a rowboat for a dollar a day and fished out there, and we had a heck of a time. We were Tom Sawyer and, and Huck Finn. <laughs> it was great. The freedom was just marvelous. And then 435 miles back to Waterloo. And I told my folks that we just had a great time. And on the way back, we had made a pact and signed it in blood that next summer, we were, John and I were going to do the same thing. My mother said, you cannot. I worried about you every minute that you were gone that week. I can't take that again. You cannot go next summer. So I chafed all, all senior year. And in the spring, <clears throat> May, I was uh, admitted to Stanford to go to electrical engineering school, and I won that uh, science fair award, all expense paid trip to the National Science Fair, and a plan began to emerge. I would run away from home. <laughs> so I made a sign for my science fair project. said, this uh, outstanding young electronics enthusiast is seeking summer employment in California. And I put it on my project, and uh, a research scientist came up and talked to me, and he said, I've got, I've got a, a laboratory helper job for you, 295 a month. I think I can find a, a room for you to rent for 50 bucks a month. I said, great, fantastic. So I went home. I needed a car, of course. So I uh, sold $1,500 worth of stock my grandma had given me for uh, going to college and bought a car, unknown to my folks, of course. And I wrote a two-page note, and shortly after graduation, I left it on the bed, got up at 11 o'clock at night, and got out of there. Now, YOLO is a license to do goofy things, but not to hurt people. I feel bad about that. So <clears throat> California was not, the girls were not hopping in the, in the car. I, I couldn't understand that. <laughs> It was a lonely summer, off to college. College was a drag. Electrical engineering is tough. The girl-to-boy-to-girl ratio was two to one in my class. It was a social desert. I graduated two quarters late uh, without, without a girlfriend. I did a, re I did a reverse YOLO. I went back to Cedar Rapids, Iowa to work for Collins Radio Company. 
a wonderful job. It was perspective, it was engineering, it was dealing with customers, a wonderful job. I've been there less than two years and I got a promotion, a wonderful promotion to go to the Los Angeles sales office for two new airplanes, the Lockheed 1011 and the DC-10. My job was to get Collins radios on all board all those airplanes at age 22. And I declined. I said to my boss, I've never been outside North America. I don't want to settle down. I want to transfer to field engineering and go to Vietnam. And he said, man, <laughs> you're making a mistake, <laughs> but I'll, I'll help you. So I did. So I spent uh, five months in Thailand, nine months, uh, 10 months in Vietnam. And in the spring of 69, I'm approaching 26. You remember the draft? So I was uh, escaping the draft because I was working for this military radio company. So a, a plan emerged. I would quit my job in March before I turned 26, and I would travel across Asia for a, a month, and then I had ordered a new VW Squareback with a, a sunroof on it at the VW factory in Wolfsburg, Germany, and I would drive around Europe for five months, and then I would come home and go to graduate school. And that's what I did. Graduate school was great. And then, of course, it came springtime at 71 and needed a job. And the state of Alaska was recruiting for four new MBAs to come and be budget analysts for the state of Alaska. Well, YOLO, why not? <laughs> no, no girlfriends. <laughs> go, to, go to Alaska, the last frontier. I lasted six months and got fired. And, <laughs> and Karen Rosenberger was the secretary at uh, budget management. She said, Bill, that's terrible, but why don't you go down and talk to my boyfriend, Doug Terrell? He's deputy manager of uh, the Juno Model Cities program. He's looking, he's looking for somebody. So I did, I went down there and I got a job there. I was into that for five months. And uh, about, about March, he said, Bill, you don't belong in government work. And Tom Perkins, the guy who was the director, said, Bill, you don't belong in government work. Why don't you buy that little outdoor restaurant that uh, we started last year up at the end of Basin Road? And they said, what? Are you kidding? An outdoor restaurant in Alaska? I should go back to California, go back to business school, and say Alaska didn't work out. I need a job. But I bought this business for $350, or $700, sorry, $750 at the end of Basin Road. And uh, consequently, I, I met my valentine, uh, Nancy Waterman, my valentine. <laughs> so we ran that business for 18 years and raised uh, Will and Wayne here. And then it, uh, it was YOLO, it was time to do something else. So we sold that business in 1990, started a new company, Alaska Applied Sciences, Inc., which is a 32-year-old startup that just hasn't been successful yet. <laughs> still, still working on it. <clears throat> and we built three houses together. We bought a place on Maui, and we'd work eight days a week during the summer, and then we'd take six months off and put a kid under each arm and go to Maui, and it was great for a few years. Well, now that my father started uh, the Leedy Foundation in 85, and I spent the last... 20 years uh, doing research projects and presenting them at conferences around the world, trying to help us out of this terrible mess we're in with climate change because we're burning too much fossil fuel. So that leads me to wonder, what in the world is YOLO anyway? Well, it's a license to do what we want to do and get away with it, as long as we don't hurt people or other species. I don't think any of us here believes that life is a tale told by an idiot of oh, <laughs> sound and fury signifying nothing. I think uh, 
You'll always our attempt to seize life and get everything we can out of it. That's, that's why we're here. That's who we are. <laughs> we know life is limited, and that's one of the things that distinguishes us. So, YOLO to us all. Thank you. When you're down and out, I mean, when you're down and out, ooh, ooh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2023. The theme was YOLO, or you only live once. Do you have a story you'd like to tell? To find out the dates and themes for our upcoming shows, visit us at mudrooms.org. When you get yourself back on your feet again Then you'll meet your long life friend It's mighty strange without a doubt Our next storyteller is Eric Caldwell. Will Rogers once said, there ought to be a law against anybody going to Europe until they had seen all the things we have in this country. Our next storyteller, Eric Caldwell, visited all 49 states, sorry, Nebraska, before visiting Europe for the first time. Please welcome Eric. Back in November, I took a 24-day six-city tour of Europe, visiting old friends and pretty much saying yes to everything, until my last stop in Berlin. My friend Jens, said to me, Eric, we must sauna. <laughs> and I hesitated at that. But then his seven-year-old son said, Papa, has Mr. Eric never gone sauna? <laughs> no, Mr. Eric has never gone sauna. At which point, it is a cultural experience and I must go. So he totes me across to West Berlin, to the nice sauna, and I have to say, this place was opulent. There was velvet ropes, a waiting line, beautiful marble, woodwork, and we get up to the front counter, and the very nice woman at the front counter says, just so you're sure, you are aware of the nudity policy here. You must be nude during the ceremonies. Okay. Well, as an American, this kind of flipped a few switches, but okay, we're, we're, we're doing this. So, yeah, we, we go in, change, get out to our first sauna experience. Now, for those of you who haven't been, they have these balls of infusion the infusions have herbs and oils and who knows what else on there, and they throw them on top of the sauna rocks. So we walk in, and I don't know if you would call this person the priest or what they were, the priest of the sauna, hands us all some salt, which we are to put on our skin, rub it in between the first and the second infusion. So the first infusion goes on. The smoke starts to go up. And the priest takes his fan and starts moving it back and forth. 
moving forward and back through the room until the entire room is filled. The second infusion then happens after we've all rubbed our salt in. And about 15 minutes later, we're released. So 15 minutes after that, we're getting ready for our second sauna. And you know, I'm pumped because this was, this was an experience. Once you switch off that American mind that says herbs plus naked plus ceremony equals cult, it's actually a really nice time. So I go into the second ceremony, and toward the end, I started feeling off. We walk out, grab some water, start drinking it, and as we're wandering around looking at the board to see which sauna we're going to next, spots appear in front of my eyes. And I say, I think I need a break. I sit down. I turn gray. I fall forward with my hands on my knees, and I am unconscious. The high priestess of the second ceremony sees me, rushes over, calls for a lounge chair to be brought over. I'm laid down in the lounge chair. She's holding my legs up, calling for other staff. And this very nice man named Ian comes over and is holding my legs so that she can get on to the next ceremony and is saying, do you need an ambulance? That's when my American mind clicked in and went, no! <laughs> ambulance means something very different in the United States. It means $10,000 or more. So he's very pleasantly telling me that this is something that just happens during sauna, that I was the second person to pass out that day, and that it's usual to have three or four people pass out, and sometimes even the staff. So don't be embarrassed. It's fine. They bring me a, a, a bottle of apple juice to drink, because what generally happens when people pass out cold is that their blood sugar has dipped. And so they give them the apple juice to help get them back to equilibrium. So as he's filling out this liability release paperwork for me to sign, I'm sipping on the apple juice. There's only one problem. There's two reasons why people pass out. The other one is that they're diabetic and their blood sugar has spiked. I am diabetic, so I'm laying there, letting everything just flow through, getting relaxed, getting rested, until finally I feel like, okay, I'm safe to stand up. I rush over to the showers, get myself cleaned off, but no, the moment that hot water hits me, I know something is terribly wrong. I feel my body rebel. I rush back to that lounge chair and lay down and lose the entire contents of my stomach all down my front. But suddenly I feel better. 
everything that was causing me toxins, that's all gone now. So I wait a few more minutes, breathe in, realize, yes, I'm okay. I stand back up and I walk over to the showers and I give myself a very thorough scrubbing down. As I come back from the showers, my friend Jens, who was convinced that by me coming to sauna, that I would want to open my own chain of sauna in Alaska, looks at me and says, we should go. Leave the towel. Thank you. We've got a couple more stories to get us through the rest of the evening. Our first is uh, Mike Christensen. Uh, this is the second time, actually, that Michael has been involved in a fundraiser for Siegla, the first being a midnight screening of the 1980 cult classic Times Square at the Gold Town. He still contends that the less than optimal turnout was due to uh, Genovians. Is that what we're calling ourselves? Uh, Genovian's inability to discern whether midnight Saturday referred to immediately after 11 p.m. Friday or immediately after 11.59 Saturday. In any event, let's let Mike talk about something other than this controversial question of timing. Uh, welcome to the stage, Mike Christensen. I find it um, ironic that I'm here a mere six years ago. I told all of you people about how I died on the day before the bicentennial. So why would I be doing you only live once? You only live twice. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about a leap of faith. So we all know how to get to the glacier, go to Mendenhall Valley, get on the Mendenhall Loop Road, drive over the Mendenhall River, go past the Mendenhall Campground, and park beside Mendenhall Lake. If you name everything the same thing, you're not really conveying any information. You know, it, it, it used to be called Sitaana uh, Go, which means the glacier behind the town. Descriptive and not repetitive says the guy who's notorious for using the word thingy for everything. That's kind of the, the way that my people did it. We had first clearing, second clearing, gravel pit, you know, very literal-minded people. But so you're at the trailhead, you go past the seven waterfalls, you go to the scenic overlook. I am old enough to remember being able to see something from the scenic overlook other than the trees. You skip across a couple of shallow streams. Um, you check the stickiness of your boots on some slippery rocks. You get to this, what appears to be a 50-foot vertical climb, but I've seen beagles go up it, and beagles are not known for their alpine skills. So it's, it's, it's much less intimidating than it looks. You get to the top, and there are cairns, and there are orange flags, and there's this big blue thingy. Just keep walking toward the big blue thingy. You, it's really hard 
to miss. So that's not where the problem comes in. The problem is coming back. I always get lost coming back. I'll start out okay, you know, maybe follow some people out, but eventually they'll leave me in the dust and see people who are still coming and nowhere to go. But eventually I will see something shiny or I will think, ah, this is a shortcut. And then half an hour later, I'm by myself and in need of shimmying down a chimney or, or getting out of there. Um, this one particular time, I was heading in a northwesterly direction. I should have been going south. And I came to this chasm. And it was about 20 feet across. And it was filled with trees. I couldn't see how far down it went because the trees were so close together, you know. And it was, it may take it a while in the summer, but the sun does eventually go down. And it was getting late and, and I had to get back. So my brilliant idea was to jump. And I figured, well, you know, Maybe some scratches, uh, keep your legs together so you don't have any uh, problems with the groinal area. And I knew this was a bad idea, but, you know, YOLO. So I'm pacing back and forth, trying to figure out some way to do this. I, I, I can't drill, which is idiolectical for... Um, descending on your butt with your right leg extended and your left leg like a flamingo and your arms out for friction purposes. But I knew this was a very bad idea and I knew I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> so I gather up my courage and I jump. They weren't trees, they were three inch tall horse hairs that look like the tops of, you know, fir trees. <laughs> so I landed, that was my, my leap of faith, and I, I, I landed, um, didn't stick the landing, got away with no injuries except, you know, severe humiliation. And then I just kind of trod across the field of um, horsetails, and... Um, I made my way back to the car. Thank you. Mike's going to be leading a hike out at the glacier tomorrow. If anybody wants to meet him out there. Our next storyteller is Emily Mesh. Emily Mesh's Facebook profile proclaims that she is Alaska's foremost expert at Billy Joel, an unsubstantiated claim that yet remains unchallenged. Since returning to live in the United States in 2016, she has seen Billy Joel in concert four times and has tickets to an upcoming fifth concert in April. Emily has been waiting for years for a mudrooms prompt that might justify talking about Billy Joel. And you're all in luck, because tonight is the night. Please welcome Emily. Emily. 
I became a Billy Joel fan at not the best possible time. I was 12 years old and I just realized that all of these songs that I really loved were written by the same guy and maybe I should learn more about him. And then when I was 13 years old, he announced that he was gonna stop touring. Uh, he would do a show here or there with Elton John, but in terms of solo shows and national tours, he felt that that part of his career was behind him. Which is really disappointing for a 13-year-old kid who just really got into something. Um, I did eventually see him with Elton in an NHL arena that was three miles away from the house that I grew up in. Uh, and I spent my entire high school career slowly collecting his discography and listening to each CD over and over and over and over and over again until they were just integrated into my being. Uh, and then I graduated high school and I took a year off to figure out what I wanted to do. And it turns out what I wanted to do was to go to college in Israel. So in September of 2005, I flew from Florida to the other side of the planet. And uh, in October of 2005, Billy Joel announced his first new concert tour in seven years. <laughs> and the first show, the very first concert to kick off this whole thing, it was going to be in an NHL arena that was three miles away from the house that I grew up in and 6,000 miles away from the new life that I was building for myself. I couldn't go. There was no way. I was in the middle of semester. The plane ticket was five times the cost of the concert ticket. My mom would have killed me, so I wouldn't have had a place to stay. Um, <laughs> I was beside myself. I was shattered. Uh, he released a box set of rare recordings around the same time, and when I got my copy in the mail, I just kept it with me literally everywhere that I went. I was almost in a place of mourning. And then one night, it was a cold night by Israel standards in January, about 40 Fahrenheit and raining. I decided that I didn't want to cook, so I walked down to Sokolov Street, which is the main street in Herzliya, where I was living. I uh, got myself a hamburger, warmed up, and uh, I started walking back home, and my phone rings. And this is about like 11.30 midnight-ish in Israel, and it would have been like late afternoon in Florida, but it's pretty late for my mom to be calling me, so I already know that something's wrong. And in the back of my head, I kind of already know the answer when I ask, what's wrong? Steven. Steven Brill was the kid that I met the very first day of kindergarten, and we clicked immediately. We spent so much time together, we had so much in common that other kids just assumed that we were siblings, and we just kind of got used to people assuming that we were siblings. We were best friends in every possible sense of the term. Steven didn't take a year off after high school. He went straight to Florida State University. And uh, freshman year, he came home for spring break with what he thought was a hernia. But at night, the pain became so unbearable that his mom put him in the car and took him to the hospital where they found out that it was not a hernia, it was cancer. That spring, Steven started chemo immediately and that summer he had surgery. And in the fall, when I got on that airplane, I thought he was getting better. He was supposed to visit me in Israel when he got better. But that phone call in January was my mom telling me that he developed an infection, and he was in the hospital in a medical coma, and the doctors were giving him a couple of weeks. 
And on January 21st, 2006, Stephen Trentbrill passed away. I called a classmate whose boyfriend had a car and they drove me to the airport at four o'clock in the morning. And uh, I remember sitting in the terminal as the sun was rising, completely alone, nobody else was there, and my phone rings. It's my university's uh, housing advisor. We'd scheduled an inspection for that morning and she was calling to make sure that I was ready and at the apartment. And I said, I'm not at the apartment. I said, where are you? I'm at the airport. Why are you at the airport? My best friend just died. And I hung up the phone and I just started crying. Couldn't stop right in the middle of the terminal. When I started putting together this story, it was originally the story of that concert that I missed. The second half of the story was going to be the fact that 10 years later, when I moved back to the US, I scheduled a layover at JFK Airport that was long enough for me to catch a train into Manhattan, get to Madison Square Garden, and see a Billy Joel concert, then catch a train back to the airport in time to get my connection. And it's true, I did do that, but there isn't a story there. Um, I was trying to figure out how to make it something that was substantial, and the more I went over this story in my head, the more I kept coming back to the story of Stephen. In my mind, I couldn't unlink the story of this concert that I missed and uh, the story of Stephen's passing. Um, this sort of perceived sense of loss when I realized that there was this concert that I was gonna get to compared to the very real sense of loss when I lost my friend because there's always going to be another concert, but there's never gonna be another Stephen because you only live once. Thank you. We, we have one final storyteller, and this was someone who almost literally at the last minute uh, became a, a fill-in. We had a, a medical dropout uh, yesterday, and, and uh, so Spencer Edgers contacted us on our Facebook page, which you're welcome to do as well if you want to sign up for future storytelling events or visit our website, mudrooms.org. Um, but Spencer's going to join us here, tell a story. We know almost nothing about Spencer. I could make up all kinds of things, but I'll just tell you that he's a new Juno resident sharing uh, their story of moving to Alaska in the dead of winter. Welcome to the stage for our seventh and final story this evening, Spencer Edgers. Hello. Yeah, I just, I just moved here from Seattle. Yeah, I signed up today. This is kind of a surprise for someone in the audience as well. So yeah, I moved here a little less than a month ago on January 18th. And this wasn't an ordinary move uh, where you spend months uh, planning and preparing, at least not consciously. But I've had, I've had friends here in Juneau, as well as Skagway um, and Sitka for several years now. Connections I've made as a musician and a performer. And they're some of my favorite people in the world. 
And I've really enjoyed visiting and exploring um, the different Southeast communities. And so last summer, I tried to I, I decided to try the season, the summer season in Skagway, and I, I had began to form this idea in my head that that my Alaskan friends seemed to have access to some secrets of life that that I had been out of touch with or hadn't learned yet, having spent most of my life in highly populated areas like Seattle and Philadelphia. And so I, I felt this sort of Alaskan allure, um, like y'all have been calling to me. <laughs> and so last summer I, I ended up at the, at the Haynes Fair do you all call it the Haynes Fair, or do you call it the, the Southeast Alaska Fair? That's what I thought, okay. <laughs> so I ended up at the Haynes Fair, uh, playing, playing saxophone with a few different bands, um, and I didn't expect to meet a particular individual who would end up embodying this allure for me. <laughs> and her name's Holly. And we live together now. <laughs> And so at, at the fair, Holly and I shared a few words uh, before one of the sets that I was performing and then went our separate ways. And I returned to Seattle in the fall, uh, only to find myself back up here in Juneau for Halloween weekend. Uh, I kept running into this person of, over the course of that weekend because I learned that she lives here in Juneau because she... I saw her on the street. <laughs> and at this point, I actually had forgotten that we had met. And I just knew that there was, there was something there. Um, and I felt, so ran into her, I felt my body being pulled towards her. Are you, are you Holly? <laughs> And so we, uh, we, we flirted for long enough at the bar uh, for me to know that there was something there. And on the witch's Sabbath, we went on our first date. So we, we kept in contact. We kept in contact after I got back to Seattle, uh, sort of virtually dating. Uh, we made plans to see each other in January of this year, 2023, until one day we both realized we didn't want to wait that long till January, um, and I had been struggling with money. Um, it's been a pretty rough winter for me uh, since I got back from Skagway. That's not saying anything about Skagway, but. <laughs> so I told her, I, you know, I wish I had the cash to come and, to come and see you, uh, but I don't. And so she, she offered to fly me up on her dime. And I said, dang, twist my arm. <laughs> At one point, Holly mentioned to me that she had, uh, she, had a, she had had a thought that if I ever wanted to come live with her, she would love to have me. I said, did you just invite me to come live with you? <laughs> so I, ca I came back up here the week before Christmas and my birthday, my birthday's Christmas Eve, if any of you are planning on getting me anything. <laughs> 
I came up for what I thought was going to be just uh, just under a week of a visit, and it ended up being almost two weeks because I got COVID. <laughs> so we quarantined together in her apartment for enough time for us to realize if we live together, we might do just fine. All the while, Holly is being an absolute angel and taking care of me while I'm sick. Um, so things have been on the rocks for me in Seattle, and um, I just could not see a path forward for myself there, struggling with almost every aspect of life, dealing with a couple of deaths of close friends in uh, 2021 who were the same age as me, as well as two elders, grandparents um, last year, last fall. Um, and so the second week of January, I decided to move up to Juneau and in with Holly, and I think I'm going to consider it as one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, it's been such a smooth transition, and I have you to thank, Holly, for something so beautiful to come out of a very dark and seemingly hopeless time in my life. Um, it's a blessing. I love you. I'm happy to be here in Juneau, and I want to thank you all for welcoming me to your community. So thank you. Do you remember day we met, that is when I knew you were my pet. I want to tell you just how much I love you. Come this is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on February 14th, 2023. The theme for the evening was YOLO, and proceeds went to the Southeast Alaska LGBTQ Alliance. Special thanks to Kanehidi Northern Light United Church, the Rookery, and COPA for supporting the event. Thanks also to Alaska Robotics for hosting our website, mudrooms.org. And of course, Thanks to KTOO for bringing each Mudrooms to listeners like you. Join us March 14th for our next show with the theme of Disconnect. This program is a production of the Mudrooms Storyboard. Alita Buss, Jeffrey Smith, Crystal Briette, David Noon, Rich Moniak, Jane Hale, Summer Custer, and me, Kristen Rankin. Have a good night. Tell you just how much.